Hi there, welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path. Uh, today we're going to continue our study of the book of Revelation. We are currently, <clears throat> excuse me, starting chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 are the seven letters to the seven different churches. And also, if, if you didn't catch the introduction, uh, each one of these letters represents not only a different historical period, but also a different spiritual uh, position. And so we'll get into this first one here, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. We'll start reading that. This first letter is covered in verses 1 through 7. Verse 1, it says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, <clears throat> and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay, so this is the letter uh, to the church of Ephesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. To understand uh, a little bit more about the background of this letter, what actually is me the meaning of many of these phrases are Nicolaitans. You don't know that right offhand. <laughs> you don't really know what, what it's referencing. And the golden candlestick. Um, many things they're doing right. But verse 4 is very clear. It says, nevertheless, I have found, or I have somewhat against thee. There is something wrong here. And, and so, you know, we kind of need to know what it is. Each one of these letters, while it is written to an ancient church, it still holds very clear meaning to each and every one of us. It's a warning to each and every one of us. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Uh, you have ears, then you need to hear. doesn't matter if you can hear, uh, if you can see only, or whatever it is. It's talking about your heart. If you can hear with your heart, then you need to heed. Now, <clears throat> here in Ephesus, uh, it is by title, the formal church. Ephesus is known as the formal church. Uh, now, in the history of this church, we'll cover that first. In each one of these, we'll go through the history. I, I'm a history buff, so I always kind of like to look them up. Uh, have pictures with each one of them. Like I said in the last episode, I, as we go through the study of the Book of Romans, I've, I've pulled up pictures to show um, the Sunday school class what we're talking about. And if you can, you can go online, uh, Google it, and find many of the pictures that I have. Uh, I don't have, you know, rights to any of it. Just sharing it with everyone, just like everybody else can pull it up on Google and see it themselves. But there were uh, 
several factors responsible for the greatness of this city, and it was a great city. Ephesus was a great city. There's no doubt about it, and, and we're going to cover that. Now, first of all, uh, one of the main factors that made Ephesus a great city was her economics, her economics. It was considered the greatest harbor in all of Asia. Uh, it sat on the mouth of the Kayster River, C-A-Y-S-T-E-R River. And when I say mouth, uh, if you don't know the characteristics of a river, the mouth of the river is the opening out into the ocean, okay? It's where it meets the ocean. So uh, <clears throat> that that was the uh, port. It was right there on the end. So first thing you come to, okay? Sat on the mouth of the Castor River. All roads in the Castor Valley met in Ephesus. There's Castor and then there's Castor, C-A-S-T-O-R, Castor Valley. Um, uh, you've heard the old uh, Muff, Monroe muffler commercial, I think it was. All, all roads lead to Monroe's. <laughs> Monroe's muffler. Okay. If you haven't, there was a commercial that said that. All roads lead to Monroe's. Well, in this time and period, uh, the commercial would have been all roads lead to Ephesus. <clears throat> so uh, they all met. All the roads in that valley met in Ephesus. So it was basically the hub of communication. It was the hub of logistics. It was a hub of transportation. It was a hub of trade. Uh, other roads of importance. Uh, there was a road that ran from the east, uh, uh, from the Euphrates River and the Mesopotamia region, through Colossa and Laodicea to Ephesus and the Mediterranean Sea. From the north, one ran from Galatia through Sardis and to the sea. From the south came the road from the Meander Valley. It was the largest city in all of Asia Minor although Pergamum was the capital. At its climax, it boasted a population of somewhere between 250,000 people and 300,000 people. That's quite a population. All right, so that was the economics. It was also uh, great in uh, reference to its culture. It had a great theater. <clears throat> Ephesus had a theater uh, that seated uh, about 25,000 people. Every year, this theater would host the largest games in all of Asia and would bring people in from all over the province. Of course, that meant business, that meant money, and anytime you have money flowing in, that's a productive thing. So Ephesus was great at that. Also, it had a great stadium, which was located on the northern uh, section of the city. The spectator seats to the south were made into the side of Mount Pion. It was carved out of the mount, uh, mountain, and I'm looking at a picture of it, and it it looks basically like a bowl cut into the side of a mountain. A monumental gate was placed on the west. At first, it was used purely for ceremonies and sporting events, but later on, it started being used for gladiator games and for persecution. So it had a multifaceted purpose there. Uh, there is a road there. It was called the Arcadian Street. Arcadian Street, maybe. A-R-C-A-D-I-A-N-E. And that road is still there today, by the way. I'm looking at a picture of it right here. Uh, there's some grass growed up into it, and there's ruins all around it, but it's a wide road. It was the main thoroughfare through the city that led down to the harbor. It was 600 yards long, 105 feet wide. It had massive decorative gates at both ends, and it was lined with street lights. 
also lined out with rows of columns 50 feet deep. So there were columns on each side 50 feet back from where it started. Behind these columns, <clears throat> excuse me, were baths, gymnasiums, and other impressive buildings. The entire street was paved with polished marble. Imagine what a sight that was. And it was all, look, at all. we just talked about their commerce, their economy, and they're drawing all these people from there. Of course they wanted to be impressive. So one of the first things would have been would be a, a highly polished marble road, and everybody would have been talking about that. <clears throat> all right. Another structure there was called the Library of Celsus, C-E-L-S-U-S, -S, the Library of Celsus. This library, <clears throat> excuse me, was three stories tall. The scrolls of the manuscripts were kept in bored out holes in the walls. Our libraries today have wooden shelves built. Uh, these were rock walls and they drilled the holes out. And the manuscripts were kept in holes in these walls. And the walls were double layered to protect the scrolls from moisture and temperature variations. Pretty smart. The capacity of the library was over 3,000 scrolls. It was considered the third richest library after Alexandria and Pergamum. Now, you've heard stories of the Library of, of Alexandria and how, you know, nobody knows what happened to all those scrolls there. Uh, how about Pergamum and the Library at Ephesus? We don't talk much about them, but where are they? Where are all the writings? I'm sure they've deteriorated or they were hidden to a point where nobody could find them even to this day. So, anyway, in construction, they used an optical trick where there are shorter columns on the sides of the facade and taller ones in the middle, giving the illusion that the building is greater than it appears. The statues in the columns symbolize wisdom in the statue of Sophia, knowledge in the statue of Episteme, Episteme whatever that is, E-P-I-S-T-E-M-E, -E. <clears throat> excuse me, intelligence in the statue of Enoia, E-N-N-O-I-A, and valor in the statue of Arete, A-R-E-T-E. -E. So that was the library. Uh, another famous structure there was the Bath of Various, the Bath of Various, which had three arched corridors uh, over 132 feet deep back into the mountain. It was constructed of cut blocks of marble, and the three corridors were three sections. Uh, <laughs> now get this. There was the Frigidarium, which is cold water. Frigidarium. The refrigerator. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Tepidarium was for warm water. Tepidarium. Tepid water. Then there was the third column. And I'm sure you've guessed it by now. It was for hot water. And it was well, it was called Caldarium. Scalded Caldarium. See, that's where we get all those words for. You're frigid, you're tepid, or you're scalding. <laughs> okay. It's just amazing how all this stuff kind of just comes, you know, around. You never really know where those words come from. Well, there you go. <clears throat> uh, another famous structure was the Ephesian Terrace Houses. And that's basically talking about several different structures. But th there's actually one there that I found online. It's a picture of one. And there are... Currently, six of them still standing, all constructed from 1 B.C. on. 
uh, the roofs were either shingled or, if they were rich enough, they were tiled. The floors would contain mosaics and, and the walls would be decorated with frescoes. If, if you don't know what frescoes are, uh, let me talk about that a little bit because actually here in, in, the, in the mountain regions here of North Carolina, uh, there are some really good frescoes in some of the churches here. And basically what it is, if I have this right now, I, I know basically what it is, it, it's, it's an uh, art picture made of colored sand. And if I have this right, I think it's either standing up or laying down. I think it's standing up. That's how they do it. And, and they pour colored sand in there and they build the picture up from the bottom up. And it's, it's colored sand. They call it a fresco. It, it's impressive. How they, it's one thing to paint. Okay. Have you ever tried to draw a picture? Uh, one of the hardest things for me to draw was a picture of a hand. I can't ever get the fingers right. It always looks like a hand is about, you know, twice as wide as it should be. I just can't ever seem to get that right. And that's drawing it or painting it. Now imagine trying to do it with colored sand. Oh, man, I'd go crazy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, okay, here, here it talks a little bit about it in here. I kind of got ahead of my notes a little bit. But anyway, uh, the mosaics are cut pieces of glass or marble or precious stones of various colors and size cut into squares and cemented to the ground with stucco ancient glue okay that's what that is that's mosaics and and uh, if i'm not mistaken there was a mosaic just found a couple of weeks ago in israel uh that, that was buried in, in a ruins somewhere there i think yeah i think they just found one over there so they last a while you just have to find them if they're not broken up or uh destroyed some way uh, the fresco paintings they're talking about here was a method of paint which applied watercolors to fresh plaster or wet mortar. The paint drying with the plaster or mortar becomes very durable. Okay, so they did it a different way. Okay, so I kind of went off on what our frescoes here are made like. But Okay, now you know two different ways to make frescoes. Now, each housing unit would have an interior courtyard with an open ceiling and two stories. The upper floor were bedrooms and guest rooms, while the lower floor were living and dining rooms opening to the hallway. The heating system was made of clay pipes beneath the floors and behind the walls that contained hot air, not water, because why? Water would cause moisture. They used hot air. The houses had both hot and cold water. Hot and cold water, even this far back, 1 B.C., think about that, 1 B.C., over 2,020 years ago, <laughs> they figured out how to have hot and cold water. Uh, the rooms had no windows. The only light came from refracting lenses from the open hall, and if you don't know what that means, uh, you remember that the center of the house was an open courtyard, and there would be a reflective mirror sitting out there uh, capturing the sunlight from above above and bouncing the light into the room. You just have to get the angle of the mirror just right, or a lens just right. I'm telling you, man, they, they, we look at these <clears throat> ancient people, we don't really see just how smart they were. Again, I tell you, there were things that they did back then we have not figured out today. We just haven't figured it out. We're the ones not smart enough, all right? <clears throat> also, the latrines are next. If you don't know what a latrine is, that's a public bathroom. Okay, 
That was what their term was for it. Anyway, um, <clears throat> I have a picture here of one. It's in the corner of a room. Uh, well, I say a room, but it's a kind of a large room. It's an open corner. It's got probably uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, about eight seats down one wall. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and about eight down the other wall. Okay. So there was no standing in line, ladies. The, I, you, it was, <laughs> there was plenty of room. <laughs> okay. It was, the picture I have here is a, a part of the uh, Scholastica baths. And there were only public toilets in the city. Not any, not any private ones, only public ones. There was an entrance fee to use them. So forget about this running to the bathroom for five minutes. <laughs> it costs you money. So you kind of, you know, hold on to it a little bit longer till you absolutely had to go. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the center was an uncovered pool with the toilets lining the walls. And the toilets had their own draining system underneath. These people had it figured out. The plumbing, the hot water, the cold water. Uh, they were not living in terrible discomfort, I'll tell you. <laughs> and if they were really rich, I mean, they had it really made. Uh, so in Ephesus, the population was basically uh, very mixed. Uh, the citizens consisted of basically six what we would call tribes, for lack of a better word. Uh, the descendants of the original Ionian settlers. There were descendants of the Greek settlers of approximately 1000 BC. Uh, th there were others who were descendants of the Lydians, the Persians, and later Greek settlers from Alexander's campaigns. And then, of course, there were descendants of, of the Jews. So there, there was a great variety of different kinds of cultures, different kinds of backgrounds, different kinds of people. Um, and they thrived on it. They flourished on it. Okay. Now, another thing that they were famous for were their politics. Oh, don't you know that had to come around? <laughs> Now, Ephesus was what is called a free city, a free city. Now, in the Roman Empire, a city could gain the honor of being a free city within the empire through dedicated service. And, and basically, I mean, let's think about it. If the Roman uh, Empire felt like, you know, you were doing what you're supposed to do, you were paying your taxes, the people were behaving, they weren't rebelling all the time, then you could gain the status of being uh, basically what is called a free city. But notice I said it was in the Roman Empire. They were not free. They belonged to the Roman Empire. Okay? A free city could self-govern, but within certain limits. They were not totally free. And uh, if they behaved, and they were considered a free city, then they were exempt from uh, housing Roman troops. And of course, why would they house Roman troops? Well, in case there was an uprising or a rebellion, they wouldn't have to march the troops for four or five days, they could squash it right then because they were in the city. Also, it was what is called an assize city. Assize city. A-S-S-I-Z-E city. Now, this is a select city where periodically a Roman governor would come through their territories and try the most important cases in the area. Um, like a, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, what you would consider in the American Midwest, uh, in the Westerns, when they had the marshal that would come around, or the or the traveling judge, and they would try the cases, and they would meet in one area and bring all the cases in the, from the general vicinity, and then go to the next. And it was kind of like a, a sort of a, a, a capital city for a state, or a capital city for a county, that sort of thing. Okay. Also, it was known as the Gateway of Asia. 
the gateway of Asia. Now, by law, when a new Roman consul took office, he had to disembark, disembark at Ephesus after leaving Rome and crossing into the harbor to begin the trip to his province. So basically, as a gateway thing, uh, it was a big show of uh, pomp and circumstance, and it was very symbolic and all that. It was also known as the Highway of Martyrs, <laughs> the Highway of Martyrs. In later times, the Christian martyrs headed for Rome would be brought through Ephesus to the harbor for the trip to Rome. So Ephesus was like the last port of deportation, debark, debarking, whatever, uh, to get to Rome. <clears throat> also, Ephesus was known for its religions. Religions. Uh, they were highly pagan uh, worshipers. Very serious pagan worshipers. Uh, sup the superstition around it. Now, the Ephesian letters... There's this title called the Ephesian Letter. It's a list of six words. Uh, Askion, Kataskion, Lix, Tetrax, Damnamenius, and Ision. Ision. These words, representing various characteristics of Hecate, the Greek goddess of magic, witchcraft, the night, moon, ghosts, and necromancy. These words and symbols placed on amulets and charms that were supposed to be cures for any type of ailment were highly sought after and people would come from all over to buy them. So they would make these little charms and bracelets with these words on them or these little symbols. And it was basically like a talisman, if you will. All right. Now, the pagan structures in Ephesus. There was the Temple of Serapis. And if you can look this up, now I know we have when we think of temples, you know, we've got this picture of the local church maybe in our mind. When they built these temples, they were meant to not only impress humankind, they were meant to impress their gods. And so the further into the uh, knowledge that they had, um, some of these structures were incredibly impressive. And, and, and we'll get into talking about a couple of them here later. <clears throat> but one of these is the Temple of Serapis, which Serapis uh, was an Egyptian god in the form of a bull. Uh, there was a statue inside that was constructed of Egyptian granite, which was considered the hardest granite or hardest rock in the world. So, of course, if it was an Egyptian god, it would be made of something Egyptian anyway, right? Now, there was also a separate statue inside, uh, that depicts the main goddess of Ephesus, Artemis, also known as Diana. Diana's was the, Diana was the chief uh, goddess of Ephesus. And, and the, the statues were together, and they had garland wrapped around them, and garlic, garland was a symbol of peace. And Egypt, of course, Egypt and Ephesus had a very strong commercial link with each other. Uh, the temple later on was converted to a church as the remains of a baptisterium was found in the eastern corner of the ruins to prove that they did use it uh, to baptize members and that sort of thing. So it was converted into a church. Uh, another structure they had was called the Pritaneion. The Pritaneion. P-R-Y-T-A-N-E-I-O-N. And this was a structure where religious ceremonies were held, official receptions, banquets, that sort of thing. 
<clears throat> now, there was a four-cornered pit in the center of the ceremonial hall, which contained a continuously burning fire. The fire represented the heart of Ephesus. The floor on the hall was painted red to direct one towards the pit. I don't know how floor being painted red does that unless there were red arrows on the floor walk this way, that sort of thing. I, I don't know. I do have a picture of the structure itself. Um, it has like a long hallway down each side that is covered. And then there's one in the middle with some columns and, it, and then it's going into covered. And it, I guess it covered this uh, pit where the fire was. Of course, they certainly didn't want it to rain on if it represented the heart of Ephesus. The fire went out. That would not be a very good uh, picture. Not a very good thing. Also, Ephesus, of course, was known for its temple to Diana, uh, or the temple of Artemis. It was officially called, but Diana was her other name. <clears throat> now, this temple was known as, or is known as, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Ephesian goddess Artemis is different from the Greek version of Artemis. Now, in Greek mythology, it was the goddess of the hunt. However, in Ephesian mythology, she was the goddess of fertility. Now, the statue is covered from the waist to the shoulders with breasts, or some say they're eggs, but it represents fertility. She wore a mural crown, or a crown representing the gate of the city. And this idea came from the earth goddess, <clears throat> excuse me, the earth goddess Cybele. C-Y-B-E-L-E. -E. And this is a key. This goddess, Cybele, started way back with Nimrod in the beginning of the book of Genesis. Okay, and this dark magic, black magic, if you've ever heard that term before, goes back to this Cybele <clears throat> and, and the Babylonian mystery religions. And, and as you'll see as we go through here, that stuff never died out. It may be called a different name, but it's still very active, very prominent, and very visible today. We just call it by other names, but we'll get into that when we get into it. But here, um, she looked uh, what they thought like Cybele, the goddess of, of Nimrod, looked like. Okay, There were, have been seven structures built. All seven of them were destroyed, and the next one in succession was built bigger than the last. Now, first of all, there was a shrine, and it was built around 800 B.C. This shrine contained a sacred stone, which it says was fallen from Jupiter, and that's probably a meteorite, and it's actually mentioned in the book of Acts, in chapter 19 and verse 35, fallen from Jupiter. And, of course, they thought Jupiter was the god uh, that threw this rock down to them. It was probably just a meteorite. It fell and hit the ground. Somebody saw it, and they're like, oh, it's from the gods. Now, the first actual temple was built around 600 B.C. Ephesus, by then, had become a major port of trade, so they had the money to go all out. And about 550 B.C., the temple was destroyed by a major flood. Hint, there's your sign. Uh, the next temple was built around 400 to 356 B.C., and it was funded by King Croesus of Lydia, who had just conquered the city. The architect for the structure was a man by the name of Theodorus. Theodorus. And it was much larger than its two previous predecessors. It was over 300 feet long, 150 feet wide, 
and four times the size of the last temple. It used more than 100 stone columns to support the roof, some of which had figures carved in the base of them. In 356 BC, a young man named Herostratus looked to put his name in history, set fire to the wooden roof, and burned the temple to the ground. <laughs> and there you go, his name is in history. <clears throat> the citizens were so distraught that after torturing him to death, they issued a decree that anyone who even spoke his name would be put to death. Oh my, I have ruined my day. <laughs> okay. Now, following this one is what is called the Great Temple. The Great Temple. Now, construction began on this one about 355 to 300 B.C. Some believe that it took about 120 years to complete. Don't know for sure, but it took a while. 120 years. How'd you like to build a house? It took 120 years to finish. Your great, great grandkids, I guess, being it. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. The architect uh, was a guy by the name of Scopas. S-C-O-P-A-S. Scopas of Paros. One of the most famous of his day. There was no expense spared as Ephesus was in her prominence now. She was the crown jewel and this temple was going to be the crown jewel. Uh, the wet foundation was secured by laying, according to Pliny the Elder, and I quote what he says, Layers of trodden charcoal were placed beneath, with fleeces covered with wool upon the top of them. The continued use of such questionable ground was the thought that this marshy ground would protect the temple from earthquakes. And, and as we as we get into these a little bit later, you'll you'll see that this area was riddled with earthquakes. All seven of these churches, there's something going on with earthquakes. Just about uh, they happen all the time. Great volcano volcanic blast and this sort of thing. So, yeah, they were using charcoal, which is a loose gravel, and then putting fleece on top of it, which is a thick wool. And it was basically supposed to allow the temple, with the ground shook, the temple would just slide over it and not be, um, like, you know, glued to it, connected to it, break apart. <clears throat> this temple was completely constructed of marble. I... <laughs> I'm, I suppose there was a lot of marble around, but, you know, when you see marble here and you think of it is a, a beautiful look. So just think of just how big if the temple built by King Croesus of Lydia was 300 feet long and 100 feet wide. And then they called this one the Great Temple, which obviously had to be bigger. And we'll get into the size a little bit, but just think of it constructed out of all out of marble, all of it out of marble. I mean, that's insane. It's crazy. Uh, again, they, they wanted to go bigger and better each time. They, they do that with skyscrapers today, so, you know, it's nothing new. <clears throat> uh, the 36 columns along the front, okay, 36 along the front, had lower portions carved with figures. The size of this temple was 425 feet long by 225 feet wide. It is considered that 127 columns were used that were 60 feet tall. 127 columns, 60 feet tall. <laughs> okay. All right, now this is an interesting fact. Check this out. The ceiling beams. Okay, you're talking 60 feet in the air. How are you going to get the ceiling beams up there? The ceiling beams were put in place by building dirt ramps to the top of the columns 
and rolling them uphill and dropping them into place. How'd you like to bend the fellow on the other end that just happened to miss the beam and it rolled off of the column 60 feet down? Bloom, start all over again. <laughs> all right, the temple was destroyed for the last time in 401 AD by a Christian mob that took the stones and recycled them in other buildings. It's kind of hard to rebuild if you don't have the material, correct? Now, this temple was also a center for crime and immorality. Crime in the fact that the temple possessed the right of asylum. If any criminal committed a crime and raced to that temple and reached the temple before the police or the authorities reached him, uh, he was safe as long as he could stay inside. If he come out, they get him. Uh, it was the center of immorality and the fact that the temple had hundreds of priestesses and even priests who committed sexual acts for customers. Women and men committing sexual acts for customers. There are even advertisements found still etched in the streets leading to the temple, enticing people with pictures of women and the wares they were capable of performing. Okay, now... The message to the church. Uh, we'll stop here. You're running about 30 minutes long, so I'll stop there. And we'll get into the message to the church in, in the next episode. Okay, we'll just kind of do all that together. We'll do about the history, and then we'll do the message to the church itself. All right. So I hope you gain a little uh, knowledge in that. And uh, understand that uh, it, when we get into them, the, these letters do speak to each one of us. And I know they're written in, in history, they're ancient letters, that sort of thing. We kind of dismiss them. But there's a very, very important message in each one of them for each of us. Still par, uh, paramount for this day that we live in today. All right. So until next time, I hope you have a blessed day. I uh, certainly hope God is blessing you. I hope you continue to pray, continue to study your Bible on your own. And we'll learn as we go through the book of Revelation together. But I certainly hope you don't rely on me uh, to do the studying for you. You should be doing a study all on your own. I tell you, God, God reveals things to you uh, if you stay at it. I, I, can't, I can't even express it. Only, only if you've ever done it and experienced it do you know what I'm talking about. But studying the Bible is very important. It's very important. So I pray that you do that. Again, once again, thanks for listening. Uh, I hope to have you on the next episode and invite some friends, invite some enemies. I don't <laughs> get them all involved. It gets you to thinking, it gets you to talking, and it's all about learning. Uh, again, I say it all the time that these are not my viewpoints, these are the words straight out of the Bible, straight out of the Bible. And the history uh, proves it, the history backs it up, and the history is the foundation upon. You know, which proves it itself. God said it, and and it you can write it in stone. It's going to happen, or it has already happened. Okay, all right. I'm chasing rabbits, so I'll stop here. Uh, again, thank you for listening. God bless you.